The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Culture Club time and I'm delighted we're joined by one of our best novelists. Joseph O'Connor is here. He has a number one best-selling new novel out, My Father's House. And we're going to talk to him a little bit about that before we get to his Culture Club choices. Joe, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure to see you, Matt. Thanks very much for having me in. You've picked a tremendous character as the basis of your fictionalised account of a part of his life. Yeah. Tell us what drew you to Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. Um, I think I first heard of him, Matt, in uh, Listowel, County Kerry, a long time ago. Um, as you know, Listowel Writers Week has been running for f- 51 years. It's the oldest literary festival in Ireland. And I've been going on and off since I was a young fella, like since before I had a book published. And I think late one night in the bar of the Listowel Arms Hotel or maybe John B. Keane's pub, um, someone told me the story about this remarkable local man born in Cork, but they claim him in Kerry and he saw himself as a Kerry person. Kerry people are rightly very proud of him. Uh, Hugh O'Flaherty, who um, was born in 1898. So he was in his 20s around the era of the black and tans and, you know, the particular set of feelings that people quite understandably had about them in that part of the world and in other parts of rural Ireland. He became a school teacher in his early 20s and in his later 20s he became a Catholic priest and he went off to Rome. Um, Very scholarly man. He had two PhDs and he spoke five or six languages and um, brilliant lecturer and intellectual. And he worked in the Vatican Curia, which is the civil service in the Vatican. So he's there in, in the Vatican uh, in the late 1930s as the war begins and the Nazis invade many places in Europe, including Italy. And they get closer and closer to Rome. And in September 1943, they um, overrun Rome. But as people who've been to Rome will know, um, the Vatican is an independent state, a uh, tiny country in the middle of Rome. And it has a post office and a civil service and um, its own laws to some extent. And it was neutral. So the Nazis, I, I won't say that they respected the boundary, but they did not enter the Vatican, I think because of the effect that they thought doing so would have on Catholics back in Germany. So Hugh O'Flaherty is living in there and in 1943 he begins to smuggle um, allied prisoners of war who have escaped from the fascist prisoner of war camps in um, in in Italy. He smuggles them into the Vatican and he hides them and he helps get them back out to safe countries. And he's told time and again to stop, not just by the Germans, but by the Irish government, whose policy is neutrality. And they don't want any Irish citizens involved in something that could be seen as a provocation. And also by the Vatican hierarchy, who have a concern for the uh, material and artistic and cultural integrity of the Vatican. And they don't want the tanks rolling into St. Peter's Square. So everybody's telling him to stop, but he's one of those intriguing people who just have a moral compass um, that, that that means he can't stop. I'm sure he must have argued with himself about it from time to time and he put himself in great danger with this small band of um, of friends that he put together to help him. And and they, they saved 7,000 lives in the course of uh, the 10-month Nazi occupation of Rome. There's been a documentary made in it, I think by a great niece of his. Yeah. There have been 
non-fiction books, biographies of him. There's a website with tremendous material about him. It's wonderful, yeah. There was the movie, The Scarlet and the Black, in yeah. which he was played by Gregory Peck. He was. So what have you done differently? Um, I, he, he's, he's my version. I, he's fictionalised. He's truer to my understanding of what Hugh was like. Um, I mean, the whole premise and the, the way that my novel is set is different. Most of it is set over one night. It's Christmas Eve, 1943. And the, as I say, this group of eight people who he has put together, they masquerade as a choir. Uh, so they meet two or three times a week for rehearsal. But while they, they're convinced that the Gestapo have bugged every room in Rome. So while they're singing, they're passing notes back and forth about this week's um, escape plan. So he's really, um, as I say, he's he, he's my version. I hope a fuller version. I've never watched all of the um, Scarlet and the Black movie. I've seen scenes from it, but I guess I deliberately didn't watch it uh, because I was writing this book. Um, I had the cooperation of Catherine O'Flaherty and her family who very graciously and generously allowed me access to all of his surviving papers. So I think I have read every word that Hugh O'Flaherty ever committed to paper himself. He was a very interesting writer. He, he After the war, he, he was a journalist uh, like yourself and myself in a former life. Um, he wrote a column for the Daily Express for two years. It was like Our Man in Rome and a good columnist, very lively and full bits of juicy gossip and facts and anecdotes about Rome. Um, a very funny and smart letter writer. Um, Sounds uh, like you so had lots of fun researching this and I did, writing it. I did. I really liked him. You know, I, I, I loved just getting to know him and the group of people he put together. Um, one of whom was remarkable woman called Delia Murphy who would be known to older uh, fans of Irish music. I was chatting with John Kelly about Delia Murphy really and he was saying to me that she really was 1940s Ireland's closest thing to a pop star. You know she she had made albums and she went on tours and she got huge crowds and she was in Rome during the Second World War because she was married to a man called Tom Kiernan who was the first um director of Radio Aaron back in the 30s, but he, he became a diplomat and he was posted to Rome. So Delia's there and, you know, the spouse of a diplomat of a neutral country. She is absolutely not supposed to be involved in helping uh, British prisoners to escape. But she took part and was an important figure and a very courageous figure in the escape line. There was um, the British ambassador who was an aristocrat. He was the future Duke of Leeds a man called Sir Francis Darcy Osborne, uh, who was a close friend of the late Queen Mother. Um, and there was his his valet, or his manservant, I suppose, a fascinating character called John May, who was a cockney. And he played an interesting role in the escape line because you've all of these very high-minded people who believe in human rights and who take great risks to their own lives in order to save people. But they need one guy who's a bit of a scrounger and a bit of a thief. And if like there's somebody who you need to go and steal a German army motorbike or a set of Italian fascist uniforms or get the false, the tickets in false names for the train to Zurich. And Johnny May was the guy who did that. So they're an intriguing group of people from very different backgrounds, different ages, different faith um, perspectives. The women in the group are very, very important. And I, I think they only agreed about one thing, which was 
this mission to save as many people as they could from okay. the Nazis. You've sold it to me. That's a great tale. My father's house. My father's house. Okay, yeah. and it's available. It's just in the shops now. We better get to the Culture Club. Although I could talk about Hugh O'Flaherty for loads more time. Okay, the first question we put to every guest on the Culture Club is to tell us the first single that you ever remember buying or will admit to buying. You have definitely gone for something that has never been nominated before. Yeah, well, <coughs> I, I actually remember it very well and sometimes people don't remember the first single that they bought and certainly like it was a very, very lively and exciting time in music when I was a kid. Um, late 1970s, early 1980s, you had punk, you had new wave, you had um, the coming to cultural life of Dublin in a new way, you know, where there were bands and there was the hot press and there was in Dublin magazine, which was, you know, an events guide, but also had a real personality. Um, and there were record shops that would allow you to go into them and hang around and not buy anything. So one of them was not 60 seconds from where you were and I are meeting today, Murray's record shop at the top of Grafton Street. And I was in there one day and I heard the sound of X-Ray Specs, the London punk band, um, doing a number called Identity. So I first heard it when I was 15, when the iPod shuffle um, throws it up again. Still these days, uh, I, I, I love it. I think they were a fantastic band. Uh, so X-Ray Specs Identity is my first ever single. Let's hear it. Maybe the first time I've actually heard that since it was in the charts Isn't back in the late 70s. Tell <clears throat> us about the lead singer. Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by her. She she was uh, Marianne Saeed Elliott and uh, her, her background was interesting. She's of Somali-Irish um, heritage and she didn't look like a conventional pop star and it was a great era for that. You know, I think it was a great era for the shattering of um, images. She was one of the very few people of colour and maybe the only woman of colour in punk. And there she was on top of the pops week, week after weeks, uh, week after week. Um, documentaries and stuff have been made about her since. And I, I sometimes think I'd like to write a novel about her. I, th I think she was a really unusual figure and that X-ray specs were absolutely as good as the Sex Pistols every day of the week. OK, let's go to a favourite album. And you've gone for a Van Morrison album, but not Astral Weeks. Well, I love Astral Weeks as as who doesn't. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary achievement recorded when Van Morrison was 22 um, over a couple of weeks in San Francisco. Very, very quickly, we still don't know. Van Morrison nerds still don't know, in fact, the names of all of the musicians who played on Astral Weeks. And it's a wonderful thing. 
Uh, but I suppose its cousin or its sibling is the lesser known album Veden Fleece. And I just love this record. I come back to it again and again. I think the quality of his singing on, on the record is just so soulful and moments when his voice really does sound like a musical instrument. Um, he, he's obviously a fascinating figure and an amazingly creative person and has, has released many brilliant albums. But I have a particular love uh, for Veden Fleece and um, for this this song, I think the way his voice comes in at the start of this song r- really sends chills down the spine. The song is you don't pull no punches, but you don't push the river. Yep. just love the way that is so Irish and yet so full of the gospel tradition that Van grew up with. You can really hear it's an Irish kind of bard, but it's also James Brown and Mahalia Jackson and the beautiful flute and the whole way it's just put together. It's it's an amazing listen, Feed and Fleece. But you've gone for Bob Dylan as your favourite artist or band. Well, <clears throat> I have a lot of favourite artists and music means, you know, a great deal to me. But since you asked me the question, I was thinking, well, there's only one person who I have been listening to since I was 15. You know, I can remember the first time I ever heard him in my friend Kieran Farrell's house. His his big brother had a cassette tape of Bob Dylan's album Desire. And I was 15 then. I'm 60 this September. And I doubt that a week has gone by that I haven't listened to Bob Dylan once. He's, he's so intriguing and elusive and contradictory and brilliant. Even his bad albums, to me, are better than everybody else's good albums. Uh, his his lyrics are great. I love his singing. Um, I, I think he is the world's best singer of a Bob Dylan song. Uh, and just the power of his performance uh, on, on this track is really electrifying. The track is, It's Alright Matt, I'm Only Bleeding. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There is no sense of trying Oh, 
scorn, a threat to deep up with scorn, his suicide remarks are torn, when the fool's gold mouth beats a hollow horn, plays wasted words, proves to warn that he not busy being born, is a busy dying. Temptation's page flies out the door, you finally find yourself at war, watch waterfalls of pity roar. Feel the moment and like before you discover that you just be one more person crying. So don't fear if you hear that foreign sound in your ear. It's alright, mom. And that's from the live sorry. album with the band before the flood. Yeah, it's just the unmistakable sound of Bob Dylan and his his fantastic lyrics. You hear waterfalls of pity roar. I mean, he really is a great poet and I I think he deserved the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, Some people drive the train and Bob Dylan is one of the people who built the tracks and I think all of us who love... uh, the, the musical traditions that he comes out of, like blues and country and rock and roll, just owe him so much. A true pioneer. One last musical one before we need to take a break. Best gig you were at? No, I'd say this was a hard one to decide, was it? This was a very hard one because I love live music and there's there's probably nothing I like more. And I would stop in Grafton Street, as I did 20 minutes ago, and listen to any busker almost before I would read uh, any book. But... I suppose the best was in 1984, the the then still fairly unknown band, The Smiths, came to play in Dublin. Now, it wasn't their first gig in Dublin. I'd love to have been at that. It was their second, but they were still on the way up and their debut album had just come into the charts and myself and my friends knew every single word of every single song. Uh, And it was the first time I was ever at a gig where I felt there was like total togetherness between the audience and the band. It was riotous and it was fabulous. And and I I still remember it just with such um, huge affection and and pleasure. So it was the Smiths at the SFX in Dublin, 1984. We don't have audio from that, but from a show in Rock Palace in Hamburg in the same year. Let's hear what difference does it make. Smiths and what difference does it make? The Smiths, yes. And another one of the great Irish bands, uh, of course, if you look at the heritage of uh, of Johnny Marr and, and Morrissey. And I think they were always particularly loved in Ireland and um, up and down the land. But that was a great night uh, in Dublin back in 1984 when the world was young. Joseph O'Connor is with us for the Culture Club. We need to take a break. We're going to come back with loads of books and television and movies after this quick break. 
Welcome back. It's Culture Club time and I'm delighted that we are joined today. Joseph O'Connor, the author of My Father's House, which is the number one bestseller in Ireland in fiction at present. Let's move to movies. You have picked one which has been picked by lots of people. And as it happens, one of the stars was here for interview late last year and he was an absolutely terrific character. Richard E. Grant was yep. with us. And you've gone for Whitney and I. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, there's so many great movies that you could have chosen. But as it happens, I, I was at the opening night of With Nail and I in London many years ago and there weren't very many of us there. Uh, but I, I can remember that the 10 or 20 people scattered through the cinema thinking that we had just been to something really special. I've watched it many times over the years. And the reason I chose it today is that it, it just happens that over Christmas, my two lads were home in Dublin from college in England and the three of us put it on and watched it one night and they laughed and they cried and they saw all of the wonderful things about it that I saw and still see. So one of the remarkable things about With Nail and I, as your previous guests will have pointed out, I'm sure, is that it 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 almost doesn't have any plot. I mean, the story of With Nail and I is it's set in Camden in North London, 1969, the whole decade of the 60s, Dylan the idealism, all of that is coming to an end. And you've got these two unemployed actors living in a squat and they decide to go on a trip to the country for a few days and they come back. And that's the story. Yet it is about friendship and growing up and love and creativity and the fact that often in our lives, I mean, in most of our lives, there was one relationship or there was one friendship that just didn't work out. There was somebody who left you behind or you had to leave them behind. So it's about these huge uh, themes. It's a very, very moving film as well as very funny. And of course, your previous guest, Richard E. Grant, Richard e. Grant it's just a magnificent performance. We so. have a scene with him and Paul McGann. This is the tea shop scene and I'm required to give you a language warning on this. One cake and tea. Didn't you hear she said she'd closed. What do you want in here? Cake. What's it got to do with you? I happen to be the proprietor. Now, would you leave? Ah, I'm glad you're the proprietor. I was going to have to have a word with you anyway. We're working on a film up here. Location, see. We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the tights. Cake and fine wine. If you don't leave, we'll call the police. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. It's all right. Miss Blenner has it. I'm warning you, if you do, you're fired. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place. And we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. <laughs> I would all you stiffs up a bit. The police, Miss Blenner, has it. Just say there are a couple of drunks in the Penrith Tea Rooms and we want them removed. We are not drunks. We are multi-millionaires. It's just wonderful and that the script is so beautifully written. The performances are so um, polished and so achieved. Uh, and as I say, it's just a lovely memory of... One day over Christmas when I came into the kitchen one morning and there was my son James and I said, do you want something? And he said, I want cake and fine wines. <laughs> OK, we asked you for a favourite play or a piece of theatre or a musical. You've gone for opera, La Bohème. 
Yeah. So um, about 30 years ago, uh, I was living in London. I came back to Ireland for a few weeks to, to go to Anna McCarrick, the wonderful writer's retreat in County Monaghan, where my sister, Dr. Emer O'Connor, is now the resident director, may I say. So that's lovely how that turned out. Anyway, at the time, there was a very all night drinking session. And at nine o'clock on the Sunday morning, a soccer match began between a number of drunken, out of condition Irish writers. And I uh, tripped and broke my ankle and I was on crutches for a few weeks. So I decided not to go back to London. I went to my parents' house in Dublin and my dad is a big opera fan. And one night he said to me, let's go and see this thing. So it wasn't a performance of an opera, but it was opera music at the National Concert Hall in Dublin. I had never been to the opera. I was listening to X-Ray Specs and The Smiths. And um, I, I was completely blown away by this music. And any time I've been to the opera ever since, I, I've been just struck by it in a way that no other theatre really affects me. So this is a, a beautiful short aria uh, from a great opera by Puccini, uh, La Boheme. Uh, uh, and it, it's just the most um, sweet and touching melody. Quando menvo. Isn't that just great? And I mean, <clears throat> when you're actually sitting in an auditorium, like we've been to the Met in in uh, New York a few times, and we've been to Covent Garden, and you hear some, you hear a f- member of the same species as yourself making that beautiful sound, and there's no amplification. Opera singers just sing straight; they're able to project to the back wall of the theatre. It's just so moving, and so uplifting. There's also um, a lot of opera in my father's house, you know, Monsignor Hugh, in my version of him, is is a great man for going to the opera in Rome. Uh, so, it, so it ties in with that. But it's beautiful um, music by Puccini. You're not the first person to go for opera on the Culture Club. The one that surprised us most, though, was when Scott Gorham, the lead guitarist with Thin Lizzy. Well, he went for ballet. That was it, actually. Anyway, <laughs> favourite book or author? I'm amazed you managed to nominate just the one. But you've gone for J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. And just before I ask you about it, let's just hear a little bit from the audiobook and then you can tell us afterwards about it. My roommate was a senior. It was named after this guy, Ossenberger, that went to Pensy. He made a pot of dough in the undertaking business after he got out of Pensy. What he did, he started these undertaking parlors all over the country that you could get members of your family buried for about five bucks a piece. 
You should see old Ossenberger. He probably just shoves them in a sack and dumps them in the river. Anyway, he gave Pensy a pile of dough, and they named our wing after him. The first football game of the year, he came up to school in this big goddamn Cadillac, and we all had to stand up in the grandstand and give him a locomotive. That's a cheer. Then the next morning, in chapel, he made a speech that lasted about ten hours. He started off with about fifty corny jokes just to show us what a regular guy he was. Very big deal. Then he started telling us how he was never ashamed when he was in some kind of trouble or something to get right down on his knees and pray to God. He told us we should always pray to God, talk to him and all. Wherever we were, he told us we ought to think of Jesus as our buddy and all. He said he talked to Jesus all the time, even when he was driving his car. That killed me. I can just see the big phony bastard shifting into first gear and asking Jesus to send him a few more stiffs. <laughs> Why have you picked that? Um, I, I love that voice. And, you know, it was the first time, I suppose, that I had ever read a novel that dared to have a voice like that. The the, the narrator of the when book... When did you first read it? Um, I read it when I was 17 and I, I could probably summon up the exact date when I finished it, um, if I really thought about it hard, man. It was it was in the autumn of when I was in fifth year in school. Uh, I was given the book. I just fell in love with it. And the, the day that I turned the last page of The Catcher in the Rye, I remember saying to myself, I would love to do that with my life. I would love to be a writer. Um, it's because... I, like if you grow up loving books, which I did, and there were books in the house and I had very good English teachers and all of that, you're reading... Uh, Dickens and Jane Austen and Emily Bronte and it's it's great but then you open page one of The Catcher in the Rye and Holden Caulfield this 15 year old narrator says in the opening paragraph and I'm only paraphrasing a bit he says I suppose you want to know where I'm from and what my parents did uh, before they met and how they had me and all that Charles Dickens crap uh, but I'm not going to go into it because I'm bored. And you just think the sense of excitement that somebody is saying, oh, the Charles Dickens is crap. The 200-year beautiful tradition of the English novel, that's crap. And I'm going to talk in this ballsy, irreverent, cheeky way about phonies and the world of grown-ups, the world of teachers and and the press and the banks and the whole thing is just made up to get on our nerves. And when you read it when you're 15, you just, I mean, I, I felt the same things that I felt when I heard X-ray specs for the first time. But the odd thing about it is it passes the test of any great book, which is when you read it when you're older. And I read it as a parent now. I see all these different colours in it that, that I didn't see it at the time. So it, it's just a wonderful voice. It's a truly original book. And I, I still love Holden Caulfield all these years later. Television. Uh, no surprise that the programme of your childhood, given your love of music, is Top of the Pops. Well, <clears throat> Top of the Pops in those days was, was a real event. And I, I think young people... Young people these days, Matt. <laughs> They're missing out on something. No, well, I don't think people understand the sheer excitement of Top of the Pops being on on a Thursday night from 7 o'clock to 7.30. And there was no way to see it before that. And there was no way to play it back afterwards. It was live, even though the bands mimed. It, you went over to the studio in London and... There was Tin Lizzy or David Bowie or whoever it was, apparently live 
and it would be over at half seven. And like by Friday morning, you'd be longing for it next week and it's slog through the weekend back to bloody school on Monday morning. Well, at least you had match of the day on Saturday night. We, we did, <laughs> but it wasn't the same. Uh, that might have done it for you, Matt. It didn't for me. So so the sheer, the excitement would be boiling by the time you got to Wednesday and then Top of the Pops again. Um, it was before the era of MTV. It was before the era of 24-hour music available at the at the flick of a switch. And it was it was your ration of, of, of music and colour and glitter and glamour um, once a week, Thursday night. Later moved to Friday. But if you're of my vintage, Thursday nights were very special. And oddly enough, still are. I still, on a Thursday afternoon all these years later, I still find myself in really great mood because in my head, <laughs> Top of the Pops is going to be on tonight. We're going to play the Rosillos singing Top of the Pops on Top of the Pops from 1978. Oh, that's the best off you've had all day, isn't it? Kiss you all over there from Exile, number 33 this week. Here's a group now who are going to sing all about the best pop show on television. Top of the Pops from Rosillos. Bringing me back to music that I joy I haven't heard in about 40 yeah, I, years. If, if, if you and I were at a wedding late in the night and that came on, we'd have the tie tied around the forehead, Matt, and Speak we'd be grooving on down. Um, it's, yes, it's great at top of the pop. A long way from Pacini, but still, it's got a great charm. For modern day television, I expected you to give us something like The Sopranos or The Wire or any of the great American dramas that you have at the moment. But you've actually gone for Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy show. Yeah, I, I just think it's a fabulous um, show and it, it's it's a really sumptuously shot and, and beautifully written programme about not just Italian food, but about Italian food culture. And it's, it's visiting all of the different regions of Italy and telling stories about the cities and towns and neighbourhoods of Italy through their food. And I suppose, again, it relates a bit to my father's house. The people who've been to Italy know that food for the Italians uh, is... As much part of their culture as as Yeats is to us, you know, it's it's how they express themselves. It's how things are remembered. It's how they tell stories. Um, it's to do with the colours of agricultural Italy and family and tradition. Um, Stanley Tucci himself is just such a brilliant presenter. He 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 dips in and out of Italian and English. Uh, with with great ease and great flamboyance, and he has a kind of um, boyish ability to be just <clears throat> really charmed uh, and and really delighted by wandering around Italy um, eating in people's kitchens. Uh, it, it's a beautiful, life-affirming, uplifting uh, show and it, it's about far more than food. 
We're going to finish with what we call the buried treasure section. Anything that you think people should know more about. And you want to talk a little bit about the blues. Yeah, well, if I had to choose one favourite genre of music, which, thank God, I do not have to, but uh, I, I love the blues. I probably heard blues records first in the Dandelion Market, which, again, like Murray's Records, was very near us, just around the corner on Stevens Green. Uh, very happy memories of wandering around the stalls there on a, on a Sunday morning. Indeed, now I think of it, meeting Philip Linnett there once at a, a second-hand record uh, stall in, in the Dandelion Market in his leather trousers and his gold earring and the whole thing. But there he was looking through the blues records. Um, so I started buying them when I was 15. I, I still love blues and um, we had one of the world's great exponents, uh, of course, from Ireland, the, the great Rory Gallagher, born in Donegal, but a cork man. And, <laughs> it's um, like you are, Flaherty was a cork man who yeah. became a Kerry man, yes. And, 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 and so he grew up loving the, the Delta blues, the Missis- Mississippi blues, that kind of genre of blues music, which is very special and has its own rules. And it must have been a remarkable pleasure for him that in 1972 he got to make a record with the great Muddy Waters, the King of the Delta Blues. So I, I love this record. I would love to have been in the studio back in 1972 to see uh, Muddy Waters and this brilliant brassy band and to, and to see from Cork the great Rory Gallagher on guitar. I'm ready. Great way to finish. Muddy Waters with Rory Gallagher on guitar and I'm ready from the London Muddy Waters sessions. Joseph O'Connor, author of My Father's House. It has been terrific having you on the Culture Club. Thank you so much for taking the time. Great pleasure, Matt. Thanks very much. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.